Uh, the intention with these, with these events uh, is to uh, focus on um, some current debates and current controversies, or maybe a, a keynote publication in the field of international political economy. And this year, we take as our starting point for discussion um, a brand new handbook of international political economy, uh, published by Routledge, which is an 18-chapter uh, project giving an overview of IPE as a field, um, looking at scholarship by mapping it in terms of regional schools of thought, uh, amongst other things. Very pleased to say that the, the editor of, the, of this book, Mark Live from Johns Hopkins University, uh, has joined us today. And we thought we'd run this year's debate as a kind of editor meets critics roundtable. Um, and so, in addition to Mark, we also have um, three very distinguished, and in one case, last minute commentators <laughs> uh, to, to help us have uh, an interesting discussion. Um, so, let me, uh, let me introduce uh, who you're going to be hearing. Um, the way it's going to work is that Mark will speak for uh, up to 30 minutes uh, uh, about the book and its organising philosophy, its rationale, its, its, general, uh, its general contribution. And then each of the uh, three discussants will have 10 minutes to, to say what they want to say, having, uh, having looked at the book and read it uh, and, and thought about it. Um, so let me, let me introduce the, the members of the panel uh, before we kick off. Um, we'll start with Mark, uh, Mark Blythe, who is currently Associate Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University, soon to be Professor of Political Science at Brown University um, in the fall, I think, Mark. Um, he is also, uh, coincidentally, editor of the Review of International Political Economy. Um, and some of you may remember him from last year's uh, Warwick Wright debate as well. Uh, numerous visiting positions Mark has held uh, in, in Denmark, in uh, France, in uh, Bologna, in Italy, in Germany, and in Birmingham. Uh, he's also a member of the current Warwick Commission on uh, International Financial Reform. He's the author of um, a very important book, Great Transformations, Economic Ideas and Institutional Change in the 20th Century, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2002. And his articles have appeared in numerous places, amongst them the American Political Science Review, Comparative Politics, uh, Perspectives on Politics, and World Politics. Uh, our second uh, speaker will be uh, uh, Jeff uh, Schweroth from the London School of Economics. Uh, Jeff works on the international political economy of money and finance, international organisations, especially the IMF and the World Bank. Um, he is the author of um, a number of very important articles in re of recent vintage in, amongst other places, International Studies Quarterly, International Organisation, Review of International Political Economy, and his book, I gather, uh, Capital Ideas, the IMF and the Rise of Financial Liberalisation, is due out with Princeton University Press towards the end of the year or maybe at the beginning of next, but it's, it's on its way. Then uh, Professor Shirin Rai from here in uh, University of Warwick, uh, who is Professor of Politics and International Studies here, also Director of a Leverhulme Trust Programme on Gender Ceremony and Ritual in Parliament. Her research interests are in the area of feminist politics, uh, gender and political institutions, Globalization and Development Studies. Her most recent book is called The Gender Politics of Development, published by Zed last year. And amongst her many papers, she's written in journals like Democratization, the International Journal of Feminist Politics, Global Networks, New Political Economy, Hepatia Science, and so on. And finally, and substituting at a very, very late hour, I think about 8.45 last night, Matt, uh, for Barry Gills, who was unfortunately not able to be with us from the University of Newcastle, is Matthew Watson, currently uh, Associate Professor slash Reader uh, at the University of Warwick, soon to be Professor of International Political Economy here at Warwick. Uh, Matt's uh, research interests are broad in terms of classical political economy, the history of economic ideas, the genealogy of macroeconomic theory, and general equilibrium economics the political effects of international financial markets, the sociology of speculative market bubbles, and discourses of globalisation, and the disciplinary parameters of contemporary <coughs> IPE. He's the author of two books, 
foundations of international political economy and the political economy of international capital mobility, both published by Powergrade Macmillan, along with uh, a load of articles in places like Economy and Society, the Journal of Social Policy, Review of International Political Economy, and the European Journal of International Relations. And it's thank you to Matt, not just for stepping in at the last minute, um, but also for pretty much organising this thing um, from the start. So thank you for that, Matt. But without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Mark, who's going to tell us about the book. Thank you very much, Ben. I'm going to walk around a bit, because otherwise you're sitting looking at a fixed point, and when you sit and look at a fixed point, you fall asleep. As you can hear, I'm American. <laughs> no, I am actually, which is kind of funny. And um, that's actually something I'm going to talk about in a minute. I study bankers to the point that I actually dress like them. So I just want to establish that right at the start. Um, so it's nice to be here, as thank you for the invitation and the setup and the whole thing, to be a sort of an American amongst my British friends because this is very much what this feels like. And this speaks to something very important that uh, is kind of an organizing principle of the book, and it's to do with the politics of identity and subjectivity. What I found is that being someone, obviously, from Scotland, who was trained in Columbia in uh, the United States for my PhD, and I've spent 11 years at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. No one should have to spend 11 years in Baltimore. <laughs> it's a true tragedy. But nonetheless, I haven't done that. Um, you get a particular perspective on things, and you get a particular perspective that leads you to one simple conclusion. Post-structuralists are really right about one thing. It doesn't matter what you think your identity is. What matters is what everybody else thinks your identity is. And I'll tell you two little anecdotes that perhaps will give some colour to this. So the first one is, there's a thing in the United States called the International Political Economy Society. Jeff was at the last one. I was there with him. And Jeff will confirm this. I don't think this is a harsh description. It's 75 times, here's my cross-series time-sectional analysis of X. X defined by usually the availability of the data rather than the interest of the question. It's quant heaven. If you want epistemological and methodological narrowness, this is the circling of the wagons that would make general custom push. Um, I was there, and I was invited to be a discussant on this sort of round table. So I was there, and they looked at me as some kind of dangerous post-structuralist baby-eating relativist devoid of standards <laughs> who's out to destroy their science. And what I actually found was something quite interesting, that there's a lot of really interesting questions that those people, despite the approaches, were asking. Some of them were really quite normal, like, you know, why is global inequality so extreme? And if you want to ask that question, looking at it through statistics is a pretty useful way. Otherwise, you're kind of not really showing much. You're just kind of whining about it. And despite the epistemological narrowness, I found a great deal of, let's say, I'd call them unanswered questions. And people were genuinely <coughs> trying to answer them. And that was refreshing. Prior to this, I went to the critical European Critical Political Economy Workshop. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's someone in Britain in particular that everyone has to be bloody critical. You know, it's always got to have that, because it's a good thing to be critical, uniformly. So I went to the Critical Political Economy Workshop, and there, basically, I was kind of, I don't know, I think I was regarded or, or constructed as George Bush's apologist, <laughs> this dangerous neoliberal who has to be destroyed at all costs with this dubious version of constructivism that he holds. Because what I found there was there weren't really any unanswered questions. There were just unquestioned answers. Those answers were hegemony, class, historical materialism, transnational social forces, and Gramsci. That was it. doesn't matter what the question was. That's pretty much the answer for everything, regardless of what you do. Now, why am I mentioning this? I mention this because this is kind of what the handbook's trying to get over. Because I can find a huge amount of pluralism in the supposed monoculture of the United States and the way it studies IPE. I can find incredible narrowness and intellectual bigotry in the home of the so-called plural much more open and much more diverse British school of IPE. I don't buy either of these stories. I don't buy either of these versions. So the book is an attempt to take the conversation that was started last year by Jerry Cohen and his characterization of the American school as X and the British school as Y, or sort of, you know, self and other and so on and so forth, and play with that a bit and extend it. So the reason I call it a global conversation is that I wanted to map it by geography. And this also goes to the sense of the question of biography. As Ben has alluded to, I've taught in Germany, I've taught in France, I've taught in a whole bunch of places. And it's really interesting, you go to France, there's no IPE. It just doesn't exist. And that was truly shocking. I mean, basically, I was it. It was me and Nicolas Jacques. 
and Cornelia Wall. That's pretty much it. Nobody else. They just don't do it. You go to Germany, it looks just like American quant IPE, because German political science is very, very quantitative. Right? So why is this? Why are these intellectual limits? Why does it exist in one place and not exist in another and all this sort of stuff? So, first point then is, post-structuralists are right, doesn't matter what I think, it matters what other people think. And when you basically accept that and give your identity up for other people to construct you, you can end up in really interesting places. Um, second thing is, to me there's no such thing as a USIPE scholar. It's a straw man, it's a trope. Uh, in response to Jerry's book and the piece that he published in Ripe, uh, Matt and uh, Richard Higgert wrote a piece, which made a very, very telling, I think, very good point, that there's a danger in doing this type of thing, of saying, you're like this and you're like this, because you constitute the very thing, you constitute in the subjectivity, that you're trying to actually get over. So by doing it, you reify it. So Brits become this and Americans become this and all this sort of stuff. And I really wanted to get away with that, because... I find American IPE to contain people as diverse as Helen Milner on the one side and Rawi Abdullah on the other, and I really can't imagine two more different ways of looking at the world. So that's the, you know, the monolithic Americans in this. And then, if you take that seriously, I wanted to take one more step and say, there's really no such thing as the IPE, because the very object of study is itself constituted differently by different communities of scholars. So if you're in Asia, for example, I was in Singapore for a while, and there was talking to Henry Young that made me do a sort of a section on Asia in the book, it's very different what they think the IPE is. This whole stuff of like realism and liberalism and all that sort of hegemonic stability theory and all these sort of like classics of American IPE, no time for it whatsoever. Basically, what, well, I'll talk about this a little bit, they are much more like comparative political economists, if you will. Right, so the developmental state literature, so on and so forth, that's constitutive of what, how they think about the IPE, and therefore what the IPE is. So the first point is, I don't really exist. The second point is, neither do British scholars, nor British scholarship, nor American scholars, or American scholarship, and neither does the IPE. So having demolished it all, and I wrote a book about it. Or rather, I didn't. I just edited it. And the way that this came about was basically Craig Fowley, who's the editor at Routledge, is a really, really irritating lover public. <laughs> and he just goes at you, and he never stops, and he's like, you want to write a textbook? You want to write a textbook? You want to write a textbook? I was like, no, go away, I'll never write a textbook. <laughs> and I didn't, and I didn't want to write a textbook, and he said, well, how about a handbook? And I'm like, oh, what do you think about it? Unless you're going to pay me, when you mentioned some money, I thought, well, that's not going to do it. You're not doing this for the material incentives. Um, so, let's see, what can I do? And I had this idea, and it was about reflecting on the places that I've been. And that's why it has the model that it has in terms of the organised by geography. It's also about, I want it to be a teaching book. Really, it's just, it, I find it very difficult to explain to American graduate students that there are other forms of IPE out there. Because they're all totally paranoid that unless they don't do quant informal work, they're never going to get a job. You don't get a piece in I.O., you're never going to get a job, you're never going to get promoted, blah, blah, blah. So I don't need to know anything else that's out there. And this is another trope. It's complete nonsense because most people, there are more people in jobs than there are pieces in I.O. So therefore, it can't be true that you have to get a piece in I.O. in order to get a job. I mean, this is just nonsense. But it's powerful nonsense. It's another sort of construction of the world that we have that I want to go over. So I really wanted this to be my way of saying to my American graduate students, look, here's what I think this looks like. Here's what I th this is mine. Totally subjective, not an attempt to be objective, not an attempt to be comprehensive. If you sat down in my office and said, what's IPE? I think it would be very close to this story. Right, so that's what this is. Not, it's, not, it's not an encyclopedia. Handbooks to, you know, that's their term, not mine. I just didn't want to call it. I wanted to get rid of it. I just wanted to call it IPs and global conversation. And this is kind of what I think the world looks like. Now, of course, it's an edited volume. I didn't write it. So what do you do? Well, you find people who do things that you find interesting. And I just asked them all the same question. I wrote to them and said, look, it's a Routledge edited volume. I know, I know. Don't hang up the phone, right? You know, don't delete the email. But I think this one's worth it because I'm going to give you a chance to do something you don't really get to do very much. I'm just going to ask you this. I think you write about this. So Paul Langley, for example, right? I think Paul writes interesting stuff about power. So I said, given that, how do you look at the IPE? Or I say the Walden Bellow, written about the developmental state lines, you know, and you're based in the Philippines, right? You know, to you, one of the telling things that Walden said once I thought was great at a conference, he said, yes, I find American scholarship puzzling because they talk about hegemony and leadership, and if you come from the Philippines, it's called colonialism. <laughs> and that's true. So if that's the way that you sort of engage with the world, then you're going to come up with a very different story as to what the IP was, and I want an, you know, an attempt to capture that. 
And I did so by basically just kind of getting out my little Rolodex and just going, all right, who's going to work? I asked many, many more people than actually contributed. Um, because not everybody wants to do this, and I have no material incentives or money or bribes or anything else to offer them to do this. So to those who actually did contribute, thank you very much. Um, but basically, you know, blame them. They're responsible for writing it. <laughs> all the content was them. There's nothing to do with me, thanks very much. Um, all right, but what does the book look like? I think there's six lessons from the book. The first one I've talked about a little bit. There's no such thing as American IPE. Because it's much more plural and much more diverse than you think. Now, it may be the case that even within this, that diversity isn't as big as you would see elsewhere in the world, particularly in the United Kingdom and in other parts of Europe. And I think that's true. And there's a particular reason for this, which kind of dovetails into the essay that Ben, and ben wrote for the book, which is that American IPE is part of political science. It is kind of like the bit of international relations theory that talks about money. It's simple. That's it. That's where it comes from. If you want to be an IPE scholar, you do a PhD in political science. You get a job in a political science department. And that creates a disciplining and a disciplinary narrowness that even the plurality that I can see within that, of course, that's where it comes from. That's its home. It's going to grow from certain roots that can only grow in certain directions. When you don't have that disciplinary heritage, as you, have, as you don't have in the United Kingdom, it becomes much more plural, much more vibrant, much more open. But as I also suggested, it can become incredibly intolerant and intellectually narrow at the same time, depending on which particular strain you catch. So, what about Americanism? American IPE, I think it's plural, and despite the shift to quantitative and formal work in one journal in particular, I owe it's not the same. Mainstream constructivism sits alongside realism, liberalism, and increasingly approaches drawn from comparative political economy, such as historical institutionalism, and something very British, which is becoming very popular in the United States, critical realism. So all of those things are in the mix. It's not as plural as British IPE because it stems from different disciplinary heritage. And as I say, if you want to do it, you kind of have to have a PhD in political science and get a job in a political science department. That makes it a very, very different beast. Now, American IPE is coterminous with, but not inclusive of, something else, which is Canadian IP. And the very strong contributions that have been made by Robert Cox in the school at York, and the particular strain of historical materialist thinking, which is the only historical materialism you'll find in the United States IPE. It's dead if it wasn't for the Canadians. So from Cox and his students onwards, that's been a really, really important voice. There's been part of North American IP, which is why I call it that, rather than just American IP, and I wanted to have that in there. What do I think of British IP? Well, it's different in kind, and again, these guys wrote this sort of, I think, a really, really excellent essay on this and the different um, origins of British IP, a genealogy, if you will, and I encourage you to read it. But in short, I'd say the following. Um, I don't think British IPE is IPE. I think it's an interdiscipline. I think it's actually its own field. I think it's becoming something much, much bigger. I think in a sense what British IPE is closer to, if the Americans are basically <coughs> over here in political science and there's a circling of the wagons and if you don't do certain types of work, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all of that's true, but I think there's more diversity going on than people admit. Over here, something else is going on. It's, it's beyond what a thousand flowers grew. I think that basically there's an animating question, and that question is, something like um, distribution on a global scale, the politics of global distribution, right? health, wealth, happiness, etc., etc. And how do we study that? Well, that conversation includes here geographers. It includes feminist scholars. It includes post-colonial scholars. It includes lots of people who are not part of the American conversation by and large. They don't appear in those journals, etc., and it's from so many different top roots that I actually find it helpful to think of IPE here as its own field. Literally as a, an interdisciplinary project of multiple social sciences focused on a question of global distribution. And I th I, it helps me to organise it that way. And it also helps me to get my American students to understand what British IPE is more like if I actually describe it that way. So I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but that's what I think and that's kind of you know, what I think has happened to it. I'll tell you I'll actually a little story that's illustrative of this, in fact. This is how I came to this conclusion. So I told you how I got people interested in doing it. I basically wrote to them or phoned them up and said, you know, I think you do this. Is that fair? Yeah, okay. Write me an essay on the IPE as you see it. That's it. So the Americans, this is totally classic. Because they're all in political science, what they did was the American chapters are, Jerry Cohen writes about the different traditions, so there's different voices within it, but all in political science. Rabbi Avdalal, big constructivist, writes the constructivist chapter. Right? 
Alex Cooley, rationalist, writes a rationalist chapter. Jonathan Kirshner, realist, writes realist, realism chapter. I asked four Brits. I got a genealogy of the field, a general theory of globalisation, a treatise on empiricism and causation, and a post-structural analysis of power. They're radically different things. The Asian bit, that's my favourite part of the book, because what I think it works beautifully, because I mean, it, it's, it's not South Asian, it's, it's East Asian, because again, there's only a limited number of people that I know, and there's only a limited number of time, the amount of time you can start trying to put this book together before it just becomes an impossible task, and you're not getting paid for it. But I'm on the board with Walden, and Henry's on the board as well, so I just started asking the two of them, you know, how does IPE look for you, and what does it look like? And this bit of the book, I think, is really great if you read the three chapters. The first person I got to do was Giovanni Oredi. And Giovanni is not an East Asian scholar. He's a scholar of East Asia. And he wrote this wonderful, very, very macro-level story about the eclipse of China, this China's the center of the global economy, the shift in security from the steppe to the sea, resource portfolio transfers a la John Hobson, etc. And then, basically, China disappears, colonial period, and then it comes back. And the, the way that China interacts with the IPE is basic argument is very different from Western states because it's not a Western state. It's not a capitalist state. It never has been. It's always had markets, but it's never been capitalist, and that creates a very different dynamic. It's a very macro-level story. What Walden does is fill in the meso level by basically saying, well, actually, yeah, IPE, IPE. basically what we do is more like a parapolitical economy. So the singular contribution of... East Asian IPE has been this focus on the developmental state. Because it tells you an awful lot about different types of state forms that are very different from the liberal states that are presumed by liberal theory and the realist states that are presumed by realist theory. And then at the bottom of that, Henry comes in and says, actually, if you really want to understand this stuff, it's really cool to be a geographer because then you can do all this sort of like GIS stuff, number one. And then you can also do network analysis and you can start to talk about transnational business networks. So you've got this real micro-level processes going on. So the whole of those sit together really, really well. And then in the end of it, I stuck a chapter by Jason Sharman. And it was on Australia. And, IP. and the interesting thing about Australia is it's kind of like Britain was 20 years ago in terms of the way that it's disciplined, the way that it constitutes itself. And it's referent as British IPE, not American IPE, in part because of linkages to do with training and so on and so forth, and intellectual and post-colonial linkages, etc., etc. So it's in Asia, but it's completely not. Right. It's really part of the British conversation, even though it's on the other side of the planet, and has very little interaction with or anything to say about the IPE that's going on in its own neighbourhood. And then the last part of it, the exemptions and exclusions, that was again reflecting on spending time teaching at Salem's Pole and being the only person who did IPE. Why is there none in France? So I've got Nicholas Sharp to do that. And then asking John Campbell, the sociologist who wrote that good book on globalisation back in 2004, and saying, OK, well, you do IP. In fact, lots of sociologists do IP. They just don't call it that. So what's the difference, if there is any? And also, what about economic history? I mean, in a sense, isn't IPE kind of just economic history with a theoretical twist regardless of what the theory is on the front? So let's ask an economic historian. So that was an attempt to do it. Now, I'll shut up at this point. Um, what's left out? We're going to hear lots about that in a minute, I'm quite <laughs> sure. And uh, things are left out, and I'll tell you two reasons why things are left out, or actually a couple of reasons. Number one, incentives. I actually started doing this. It was geographically organised, and that cre creates a problem. Like, who gets to own historical materialism? Which country does that come from? So when you do it thematically, why isn't this particular theory in there, but it's organised geographically, that creates a bit of an issue. Second one was, I actually tried to get a historical materialist chapter, and I've come to the conclusion that Marxists are lazy, they just don't like to write. Because I asked three of them, and they all said no. So that kind of like shut that one down there. Um, there's another one, which is, um, I don't know everything, and I don't pretend to. And this really is a total, I hate the fact that it's called a handbook, I actually really fought with them to try and get this off, but it's in the handbook series. It's not a textbook, and that's what the intro chapter goes at length on it. This is not a textbook. This is how I see it. And part of this has to do with sitting on the board of right, first as a review editor and then as, actually as one of the journal editors. You see a massive amount of comic copy coming in. The right is one of the more we pride ourselves on open and plural journals, right? But for example, and 
I'll anticipate something that's probably about to be said. Um, we receive nothing from post-colonialist and feminist scholars. I haven't seen any contributions from that literature sent to write in eight years. It's not on my radar. Now, should it be on my radar? Probably. But then you get into a tricky question, because then you're saying, do I have a moral imperative to represent all things? Probably. But then once you do that, where do I put any type of boundary, or do I end up with 35 chapters in the book? I'm not sure. But then I'm being exclusionary, and I'm creating the very negations and oppositions and exclusions that I'm railing against, which is the point of the book in the first place. So I'm hung on a contradiction, completely hung on a contradiction. I absolutely realise that. Um, but as far as it goes on this iteration, and of course this is why there are second editions, um, that's kind of where it stands. It's for you lot, it's for students. It's really not, I mean, you know, if peers want to read it, fine, but they know all this crap already. And I want it to be for British students a way of kind of de-demonizing the United States scholarship, because I think it's a terrible tendency to do that over here. And for the American students, I want it to do the opposite, which is to sort of, yeah, guess what? British people actually, and other people around the world, they might think about the IP in interesting, creative, and informative ways as well. Gee, imagine that. And if it has that as an outcome, regardless of what's in and what's out, then I think it served its purpose. And I didn't get paid enough to worry about it any more than that. <laughs> Bringing me back to looking like a banker. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Mark. Okay, um, Jeff. First of all, thanks to you to Matthew and Ben for inviting me to board to give me a part of this. Thanks, Mark, for sending along the book to have me take a look at it. Um, I'm perhaps the appropriate person to follow, Mark. I used to criticize him. I grew up outside of Baltimore for 18 years of my life. So <laughs> it's not purgatory. It's hell. Central <laughs> um, and my training, I think, is one of the reasons why I was brought here, at least my own transatlantic journey. So I thought I'd start by telling you briefly about my own transatlantic journey and get into the bits that I was actually brought here to do. So my PhD supervisor, when I was a student, when I was in many of your positions, was Jerry Cohen, who was an economist, and actually kicked off this debate that we've been having for the past few years about British American IPE and multiple IPEs. And so I was working with Jerry very closely. But I also became interested in constructivism, which was something at the time, back in the late 1990s, that was just making its sort of big splash in the discipline of political science and international relations in the area of security studies. And so I was thinking about, well, how can I sort of mesh these interests between constructivism and economics? And I was sort of working through these things. And I was, I was struggling with the idea about, well, how, how is it that constructivists can actually make a big splash in international political economy? What is the the most effective way to, to sort of enter the discipline and to make sure that those that are already sort of at the center of the discipline, the rational choice, materialist, quantitative scholars, will actually listen to us. And I sort of struggled with this for a while, and I came across some interesting pieces by someone like Emmanuel Adler, who told us about how constructivism suffers from, from the so-called missing link in linking theory, evidence, and methodological rigor. And so I was troubled by that, and I was seeking to push that forward a bit more. And I was also troubled by what Henry Farrell and Marnie Finnemore call in that recent edition of Life that Mark pointed out about the elective affinity between constructivism and qualitative method. I thought that there was nothing sort of ontologically inside constructivism that made it inherently qualitative or inherently quantitative or either or. And so I thought that there was a way to sort of further disciplinary success of constructivism by adapting the trappings, methodological and epistemological trappings of mainstream research, which is something that Mark talked about in his comments, that American political scientists are trained to speak and think one way, so that's perhaps part of what I was invited to do. So I began to develop these thoughts about statistics, quantitative methods, constructivism, and so on. And then I came to Britain. And I came to Britain, and I found it both open and closed. Open in the sense that the multidisciplinary nature of British IP, something that Mark touches on in his chapter, Raleigh in his chapter, as well as John Campbell in his chapter, that that is open more to constructivism. Right? If you go to the, many of the leading conferences in America, as Mark talked about, it's very difficult to be a constructivist without being laughed at with snickers or so on. But what you can do is convince many of the skeptics, I thought, through using the quantitative methods. And that's many of the reasons why there's not so many snickers when I present you know, PowerPoint slides and, and variable and, and statistics and data and so on. But as someone who used these methodologies, who used these epistemologies, I encountered a lot of resistance 
over here in Britain. And so I began to sort of adjust my work to take on that sort of more sensitivity towards context and more sensitivity towards normative concerns. And that's where I found myself when I got to this book, which was someone who was more influenced by positivism methodologically and epistemologically, but open to a more diverse and pluralistic social science, although still within the canons of social science, as I would say. So I'll start with some sort of nice things to say about the book, beginning with my reflections on the breadth of the opinion found in the book, and then I'll move on to sort of Marx and the book's conversations with the broader field and where these, there are absences and where there are strengths. What I'm really impressed about, and I talked to Ben about this earlier, is the sort of the breadth and the richness that comes out of the, the chapters on British and American IP. You learn about, in particular, in the chapters on American IP, North American IP, that is not as uniform as it is often portrayed to be. The dominant model is what David Lake and others call the open economy politics model, the sort of standard rational choice model of thinking. And in fact, what you find inside the book and inside many of the chapters is that constructivists and those working outside of that will find a lot of this to be a welcome contribution, showing that American IP is actually more diverse, more open than not commonly portrayed. I also think that an important part of this chapter on American and British IP is this notion that British IP has a longer lineage and is actually more rigorous than is commonly portrayed in American IP. I think many British IP scholars will welcome this contribution, showing that they are actually particularly more rigorous and more diverse and a longer lineage than is commonly portrayed. But I also think, and I'm one of these, that many American IP scholars will still retain many strong doubts about the extent to which this rigor will actually take hold and whether it will actually be um, in the sense that how American social scientists will see it. And I'll come back to that in a minute or two. But I think the real, my favorite chapter is, is unfortunately to Ben and Ben, my favorite chapter in the British section is actually that, strangely enough, from Brandon Pollan and Cameron's text, which is the one that is more sort of post-structural and heterodox in nature. And my favorite line, or perhaps the favorite line I can paraphrase from that, is that British IP needs to become more orthodox, sorry, more rigorous. They need to take up this challenge to become more rigorous in their methods. But the beauty of Cameron and Palin's remarks, I think, is that they say it's, the job is not to become more American. Don't, don't look like the Americans. Don't adopt those trappings as I have. The challenge is to begin a long conversation, they tell us, about how to construct and strengthen the existing array of eclectic and sometimes heterodox methods. And I think that's really a key point from the book that needs to be played up, is that Cameron and Palin recognize that there is a, there is a, a lack of rigor in British IP, and one which needs to be strengthened, but one which needs to be strengthened on its own terms. And I think here is the sort of the, the and it's missing from the book and something that needs to be sort of played up perhaps as a way of creating a bridge between American and IP is that the key here needs to be transparency. When you read American IP, when you read IO, ISQ, whatever, it's rather transparent. This is my question, this is how I approach this question, this is where I got the data, this is the methods, this is what I did. Whether it's quantitative or qualitative, you can replicate it quite easily. I can go into the archives and do your work, you can do mine, I can do your interviews, you can do mine, I can run your data sets, etc. But British IP, there's not a lot of transparency. You don't really know, you read, the, you read a lot of the British journals, Right, or New Political Economy, or some of the more, uh, or some of the other ones, and it's very difficult to see where did these methods, what are the methods they're using, where are the data coming from, how do I go back and do them again and again. And the key here is transparency. It doesn't matter whether it's ideographic or nomothetic knowledge that you're after. If somebody can't come back and replicate the findings that you've done, it's not science, it's not social studies. It's, it's very difficult to be rigorous in that nature. Again, coming back to the other chapters then. Like Mark, I think that the Asia chapters are perhaps some of the best chapters in the book. And I think that they're, they're, they're good because they hammer home this claim, the core claim of the book, that the, one, that the concerns one brings to scholarship helps to constitute what is and what is not the IP. And that point really comes clear, most clearly through the Asia chapters, and so I don't have a lot to say about those. The chapters that I am going to take some, some issue with are those by Jermaine, Langley, Sharman, and Jadka. And I really enjoyed these chapters because these are the chapters that really deal with the nature of the profession. And in my own research, I've struggled a lot with and dealt with the issues of, well, how do professions exercise power? How do they use this power to constitute knowledge and then use that knowledge to promote particular agendas, political or what have you? And in the chapters by Jermaine Langley, Sharman, and Jabko, we see a lot of this disciplinary politics. We see these legacies in action. IPE, what we find from these chapters, is not so much about this core claim that Mark wants to make necessarily, which is about the concerns one brings to the profession constitutes what it is. It's not just about these concerns, it's about the politics through which the discipline itself is constructed. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to read more in, in the book, and I hope for more discussion about such mechanisms. 
but unfortunately these are lacking from the book. There was a wonderful Mark, uh, sorry, Ripe Symposium that Mark had alluded to in his comments, and there were some brilliant contributions in that from Kathleen McNamara, Nicole Phillips, Jermaine again, uh, Robert Wade, and Peter Katzenstein, all touching on things like gatekeeping practices. Who's on the heads of the editorial journals and who's not? On training. Who's training whom? What are they teaching these people? And, and Robert Wade's big point, the one that I take, that I want to sort of play up a bit more, is on patrons. Who's funding us? What kind of money are they giving us? And what do they want us to do with this money? These are mechanisms through which that tell us what IPE can and cannot be. And it's the power of these actors, particularly the powers of patrons, that are often critical actors in the construction of the profession. And one of Robert, my colleague Robert Wade tells us is that if the history of economics tells us anything, it should be sounding off warning bells about these mechanisms and how they may create a certain type of IPE. I liked Palma's chapter particularly on IPE a lot. It talks a lot about how IPE is an intellectual exercise, but also a political act, something I'll return to later in the discussion. I also liked the decision to include sociologists and economic historians in there. They tell us a lot about how others see us, which is often important, as any good therapist will tell you, about, <laughs> about, about yourself, about how it is that we need to be careful about reproducing what we know, but also acknowledging work that's done in other fields that is called by something else in that something else we don't recognize. Two important points from these exclusion chapters that I want to highlight briefly. I liked Campbell's warning. Campbell's warning in this chapter comes out as follows. If the American school, that is the, the school that I find myself coming from in Mark as well, becomes more formal, more quantitative, and more rationalist, this is something that Campbell is worried about, then the sociological variables, those things that constructivists bring to bear as well as economic sociologists, that these have become less and less attractive to IPE scholars because they become difficult to operationalize. Mark's early tongue-in-cheek comment, if I can't get the data on, I'm not going to answer that question, is a very serious one, right? If you're trying to publish articles and you can't get the data because you need to get promoted and get this article out, then you may not do that. And this is a warning that suggests important limitations to the strategy that I, that I have laid out in the beginning that I follow myself, which is use sociological variables, measure these things carefully, and then use the same methods to convince the skeptics. But I think this also goes back to the Palin and Cameron's point, which is this should raise a challenge for us, right? The challenge for people interested in these variables is not to just say, well, we can't do it. The challenge is us, for us to develop new and exciting and interesting technologies and tools to begin to measure these more sociological variables, things like content analysis, discourse analysis, network analysis, important tools that enable us to get these important questions in ways, in the same ways that the behavioral revolution was forwarded in the 50s and the 60s by computing, that we can also begin to incorporate more fully sociological variables in these. And finally, on the breadth of opinion, at least in terms of this point, I like Oliver's call to do more social and archival research, because ultimately I think it's archival research where we can really begin to unpack things and begin to marginalize, or sorry, minimize our use of as if of behavioral assumptions, something that rationalists and constructivists both unfortunately rely upon. A couple final comments on breadth of opinion, then I'll, then I'll move on to the things that I uh, um, think that the discipline contributes, or the book contributes. One exclusion that was surprisingly excluded was the reigning king of the social sciences. Right? If economics is what Kastenstein, Prasner, and Cohen call the reigning king of social sciences, shouldn't we have, I, I mean this kind of jokingly, one of his majesty's court pass judgment on us? Right? <laughs> have one of the economists come to us and tell us, well, this is what you guys really show, and this is what you don't show. It would also be interesting to get at, in a sort of, I guess, a political science-y way, something you're trying to get away with, away from, is how do people studying comparative politics see IPE? How do people studying law see IPE? And so on. Obviously, you have a limited number of chapters you can do, but this is something I thought about. A final point that I'd make on this is, and I know you have a limited number of chapters, is what about Swiss IPE? And I raise Swiss IPE not because I'm Swiss or I have affinity. Belgium. For, Belgium. For Switzerland. But there's some good work done, being done by people like Thomas Braunhauer and Frank Schemelfinity. Mm -hmm. And these people do politics in a way that looks remarkably American in mm -hmm. nature. But what's interesting is European economics doesn't look like American economics at all. So why is it that the Swiss look like American in political science terms but not in economics? I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, I was a bit troubled, I'm going to go quickly because I want to, I want to take any of this time. I was kind of troubled by the geography nature of this, of the, of the organization. Um, I was troubled by this because I thought it actually encouraged the very thing that Matthew and Richard Higgett 
I had, had, had warned you about, and something you picked up on, which is that it may entrench opposition rather than engage in dialogue. And the reason why I, I think this is because the book's called Global Conversation, but there's no conversation going on between the chapters at all, mm. or very little. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, Ben and Ben are writing about British IPE, and Jason Sharman's writing about mm. Australia, but they're not talking to each other really very much. And so I want to appreciate the differences but I also wanted to see whether or not you could have actually reached some sort of synthetic position, a compromise mm -hmm. position, or maybe develop some sort of epistemological, ontological mapping and say, well, this is where these guys are in the spectrum and yeah. so on. I really wanted to see a conversation mm -hmm. that took place. And then I'll get to reflections on relevance. This is the shorter bit of my presentation, and I'll conclude. I'm not going to rehash the intellectual contributions. Others can do that. But what I really wanted to get on here is this issue of policy-making relevance. So what does the book leave out about reflections on IPE's contributions? It tells us a lot about intellectual contributions. I really like the Palmer chapter, as I said in the beginning and earlier in my comments, because Palmer reminds us that IPE is not just intellectual exercise, it's a political exercise, it's a form of political action that we can take. So the question is, if we're engaging in a global conversation, then who the hell is actually listening to us, right? Are we just talking to ourselves? Are we just talking amongst our own geographic communities? Are we even studying the relevant subject matter? One of the great long, uh, uh, points from Robert Cohen's contribution to this white uh, symposium was he was very critical of Cohen, one of the founders of OEP, uh, Open Economy Politics, is that the very mainstream uh, rational choice uh, approaches in American IPE are not even focusing on the right subject matter. They're looking at things that aren't even relevant to today's policymakers. So how is it, or who are we talking to, and who's actually listening? If people are actually listening to us, the question then becomes, how, how do we and should we actually contribute? Right? Should we be taking part formally in this process or informally through knowledge generation or knowledge training and so on? And the interesting thing about this is I'm taking part in a broader project uh, called TRIPS, which is the Teaching, Research, and International Politics Survey. It's being done out of William & Mary, uh, LSE, and other places. And what we've done is we've done a cross-national survey of nine English-speaking IR communities, asking them about their views about the profession. And one of the interesting things that we come across is there are tremendously significant cross-national differences in the ways that different English-speaking IR communities engage in the policymaking process. Americans and British don't participate so much. But the New Zealanders, I realize this is a small community, but the New Zealanders are off the charts. Something like 85% of them have take part in the policymaking process often through direct participation in policymaking apparatus. And the question is why? And, and, and does this matter? And should we actually care? I think the answer is yes to all these things, but we should care and we need to figure out why. Is it disciplinary practices? Is it, is it the fact that I sit in my office and I think, I can't afford to go consult down uh, with number 11 because if I do, I can't write that next book? Or is it something else? So again, it comes back to disciplinary practices. Um, my last point, and then I promise to finish. Mark's, key thing in Mark's book is the strength of IP lies uh, in its hybrid nature. Its ability to quote from Mark, to beg, borrow, and steal from other disciplines. And I couldn't agree more that this is actually an undeniable strength. It breaks down the disciplinary insularity, and it provides us the ability to renew and reinvent ourselves constantly through fresh insights. But the problem is, is that IPE, and political science, and politics, and international studies more generally, has a good, strong propensity to import, but a low propensity to export. And this is where I brought my prop. I told you I brought a prop. So there was an article from The Economist a couple of weeks ago, The Economics Focus. It's about the curse of politics, which is something we all studied, right? It's all about financial crises can drag on efficient remedies that are not politically palatable. Well, of course, right? We all know this. I mean, this is the sort of, economists have long studied how institutional constraints interfere with economic choices, such as special interest direct barriers, but economists have developed relatively little attention to the burgeoning literature on financial crises, how vested interests can prevent uh, efficient remedies to financial crises. But this is something we've been studying for decades, going back to at least the 1980s with the debt crisis. And yet when you read The Economist, The Curse of Politics, not one of us is cited in here. Not Andrew McIntyre, no one. And that's shocking, and it's shocking from a PR perspective, and it's shocking from the sense that we're not exporting anything, really, at least nothing that can appear in the pages of The Economist. It's just something unsettling, I think, something we should look at. So here I'm going to conclude. Enjoyed the book, important <coughs> contributions. I like the hybrid nature of the discipline and of the book, but I'm nervous, skeptical, and worried about our propensity to import rather than export, and about the difficulties 
that hinder replication across disciplines and across different communities. I think we should spend more time thinking about our own relevance, how and why it varies, whether it's a concern, and how we should respond. I'm concerned about the geographic organization of the book and the lack of conversation with the book, and about how it may create more boundaries than it may dissolve. And I want to see more on disciplinary practices and legacies. But overall, I enjoyed the book, all 400 and so on pages. Thank you. <laughs>
Um, and I do think that that is um, an important um, gap there. And it is actually quite, um, quite um, a pity because, in fact, critical IPE and feminist IPE do share quite a few things. Ontologically, both give primacy to the construction of social relations, and epistemologically, both are skeptical towards positivism. Both aspire to, and I think that is uh, an important bit in Cox's word, theories for someone and for purpose. So there's a transformative um, element to, to at least their aspirations, if not all their research, um, and which does link up with the question of impact that Jeff raised up there. Why, where are we being, you know, where are we visible? Um, talking about New Zealanders, Marilyn Waring, in 1988, wrote the book, If Women Counted. And she was a statistician. She did quant, hardcore quant, she did. She worked for the UN, so she had a platform which was somewhere that she could actually engage with policymakers. She gave a very thoroughgoing critique of what we, some of you might know this already, but what we call <coughs> statistics of national accounts, system of national accounts, the basis of which is all the national budgets in the world. So it's a UN system which all the countries in the world accept. And the question she raised for IBE scholars, as well as policymakers, was what would our budgets look like if women counted? And the answer she gave was, and actually that answer has been accepted because feminist IPE in Canada in particular has been able to lobby the, the um, statistical services there and the government there very much on this. So they have satellite accounts which do take into um, account women's work and domestic work, is that it would actually increase a country's GDP by at least 40%. Now where do you hear this? Now actually, I think three years ago, Gordon Brown repeated that in one of, one of his gender talks, um, as, a, as a sort of, you know, before he was prime minister, like before he sort of then did YouTube talks, which um, But really, I mean, sort of, you know, who is listening? It's okay to say we want to be listened to. And then the other question is, why are those who are being listened to, listened to, and those who are not, are being kept out of the way? And I think that the book, in its balance, or the lack of it, doesn't really answer that question for me. And that's, that's my, my worry, really, about, about the book. Because as I said, sort of, you know, there could have been some synergies which were really interesting. The, the paper that Len and um, John have written on everyday IPE. I mean, the little table that you give. I was going through that, and I thought, hey, all this work that has been done by feminist IPE theorists, Isa Barker, her, her piece in, in IP, um, NPE in particular, it maps on really well. So there must be some problem. What is the problem? You know, what is, why is it that we can't? And we go back to the question that Marilyn Waring raised. Where are the women? Why is it so difficult? Is it because it's bad science? It could be. Is it because it's bad politics? Again, it could be. Or is it because the disciplining of our frames is such that we um, end up reproducing while seemingly wanting to challenge. So it did puzzle me after reading your introduction, Mark, as to your challenge to these schools is actually not being seen through as much because you are reproducing those schools in your handbook. And yes, you have said, it was not a handbook, that you, you didn't want the title handbook, but actually, um, given that we are where we are, generations of MAIPE students will be looking at this and thinking, this is the mapping of IPE. 
And however much you say, hey, read my introduction first, that's not the way it works. So the second question then was, okay, that is um, the, the absence. Is there anything um, in terms of the work that is being done that could be included? And yes, of course there is. It's a long and um, uh, a long list of, of areas that could be covered, both in the context of the grist, you know, the grist to the mill of IBE, which is states and markets, production and knowledge, that, that feminist IBE has contributed. And I would suggest that one of the key ways in which we can look at social relations, as well as look at sort of um, the key issues of, of, of um, IBE, whatever the, whatever the school might be, is the concept of social reproduction. What the challenge has been, has, that the feminists have posed, is to look at states and markets, but also to look at the domestic sphere. I've just got a paper for a submission to a special issue that I'm editing on um, feminist theorized IBE which is called, it's introducing a new concept called the global household. And they are giving statistics which show that the global household is engaged in marketized, non-marketized production levels, which are extremely high. They are giving figures in terms of exchange of domestic goods produced within the household, which are now running in billions. They are talking about, so follow the money, and you will lead, you will go to the household, not just to the banks. Um, and therefore, I don't dress like a banker. Um, so if we are looking at social reproduction, what is it that we, we are uh, talking about? And why is it important? And I think why is definitely um, that an absence that needs to be addressed in hopefully, a second edition of the book, because I've already told Mark that if he doesn't, he's not allowed back into the country. Um, so, biological reproduction or production of labor, right? Making babies wouldn't be such a concern for states if it wasn't critically important for reproduction of labor. Whether it is pro-natalist policies or anti-natalist policies, if you do not join those dots, you're not going to make the impact that IPE scholars want to make, right? Unpaid production in the home, both of goods and services, as well as social provisioning, which means, of course, voluntary work. How much of state budgets, how much of the economy is being subsidized by these, this labor? But also, what is the actual social policy outcome of inclusion or exclusion of that labor? In terms of talking about women's work within the household as not work, what does that mean in terms of welfare states and state policy in terms of welfare? Questions to ask. Reproduction of culture and ideology which underpins those gender relations and which is absolutely the cement that binds. We talk about social capital. And yet, social capital would not be social capital without that glue, which is a gendered glue which holds the whole thing together. And of course, the most controversial, which is emotional, affective, and uh, sexual services. Um, which are provided both by men and women within the domestic sphere, the question is, what do you do about that? In terms of, if they are not provided, and I won't even go because I'm not competent and I don't know this literature and it's really just now making an appearance, I won't even go down the route of sexuality and IPE, which is a whole new area that we could look at. So what I'm trying to get at is that really, um, we need to address this um, gap and this absence because the only 
social science area which where there has been some critical shifts that have taken place is really development <coughs> studies. And that's thanks to the work of Amartya Sen. Right? So once you start having, you know, you're not looking at, at uh, uh, the World Bank reports on development, but you start looking at the UNDP reports on, on development, you begin to see what is the epistemological shift taking place there. What is being included in those indices? Why are those indices so different? So we be, do begin to, to, to then say, okay, it actually makes some political sense, not just some theorizing up at the top, not just some saying, hey, please include me because I want to be at your party, but because these are fundamental relationships which actually end up challenging the questions that we pose to ourselves. So whether it is work on microcredit, follow the money again, why do we talk about microcredit in development, but IPE has nothing very much to say about microcredit. Right? Um, so it comes back to sort of, you know, the importance of the everyday. So I just felt, as I was reading the book, yes, I mean, I don't want to re rehearse some of the, the very insightful comments that Jeff made about individual chapters here, but I felt like, uh, you know, there was a hole there, mm -hmm. and that was me. So I'll disappear now. <laughs> <laughs>